This is the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakta Shahadi. Each week, I dive into deep conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardship, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to expand perspectives and share voices of diverse identities. Today, I'm in conversation with Vijay Gupta, who believes that the work of the artist and the citizen is one and the same. Put simply, it's to make a daily practice of the connected, creative, and courageous world that we long to live in. Vijay is an esteemed musician, speaker, and thought leader serving to create spaces of belonging, healing, and wholeness through music. Vijay's labor of love lies in the founding and directing of Street Symphony, which brings music to people in shelters, clinics, county jails, and prisons. His work serves to engage people across vast differences to create new connections and transformative conversations. Among his many impressive accolades, Vijay is the recipient of the prestigious MacArthur Genius Grant and served as the member of the Los Angeles Philharmonic for 12 years, which he joined as the youngest violinist in the orchestra's history. Vijay shares his origin story as a child prodigy attending the world-renowned Juilliard School of Music and the amount of weight that this put figuratively on his shoulders and literally on his body as he used food as a way to cope with difficult emotions. Moreover, he reflects on the first time playing music in a homeless shelter in Skid Row and what this experience taught him about humanity, pain, and vulnerability, and how he ultimately ended up founding Street Symphony. Finally, Vijay discusses how he met and formed a relationship with Nathaniel Ayers, another Juilliard musician who dropped out due to schizophrenia and became homeless on Skid Row. The story of Nathaniel Ayers is portrayed in the Hollywood film The Soloist, starring Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr. The soundtrack of this conversation includes Vijay's performance of When the Violin, which is composed by his wife, Rina Ismail. This piece will give you a few moments of peace and beauty. It was inspired by the poem entitled When the Violin by the Persian poet Hafiz. This track, along with other pieces performed by Vijay, can be found in the show notes. So go ahead and check them out. His work is something to savor. I found Vijay's message and story to be awe-inspiring, honest, and real. I hope you appreciate his story and his work as much as I did. If you found this conversation to be moving, please share it far and wide. So without further delay, I bring you Vijay Gupta. Vijay Gupta, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me, Bhaktash. It's an honor to be here. Well, the honor is all mine, Vijay. I know um, you and I have been going back and forth for a while in terms of trying to make this conversation happen, and it's finally happening, so I'm really excited to be in conversation with you and to see what will surface between us. We can unpack all the work that you're doing, your own personal story, and the impact that you've made thus far, and so we'll get into all that, but what I'd like to kind of do to kind of get a better sense of how you perceive and understand yourself is to ask you know, in your own words, how would you kind of go about defining the question, who are you? I am constantly in a process of redefining myself, of seeing myself through various mirrors and lenses. Uh, as an artist, I'm constantly asking the question, every day I touch my instrument, every day I play the violin, who am I? Who am I going to be today? And, and you know, who we are is so often who we are in dialogue with others, right? Who we are is a result of how we are heard, 
how we are listened to, how we are seen, how we are received in the world. And so the way that the things I care about in the world manifest is through being a musician, being a classically Western, classically trained violinist. I'm a performer. I am also a speaker, uh, sharing the work of my artistry, but also an organization I started uh, about 10 years ago called Street Symphony, which is a nonprofit organization uh, dedicated to listening to and hearing and seeing and making music with people in recovery and reentry from incarceration, addiction, homelessness, and loneliness. And I think in a way, we're all in recovery and reentry from loneliness and reentry. And so again, to come back to this kind of circumnavigating definition of who I am, I think I've learned the most of who I am from seeing what I do in the world, from seeing the ways in which the work I do resonates with people and who I am is received by them. That's fantastic, Vijay. Thank you for, for sharing that. So what I'd like to do is unpack what that actually looks like and what shape that takes in your life and how that kind of came to manifest, so to speak. So how did you find music? How did you find your craft? Mm. And then subsequently, how did you kind of step into the space as a musician professionally and share this music, share your music with the world in such a way where it brings people quite literally to life? Um, yeah, tell us more about how that kind of came to be. Mm, mm. So, you know, of course, I am the child of two people who emigrated from India in the 1970s. Both of my parents are from the state of Bengal. And, you know, they came to Jackson Heights, New York in the 1970s. And when I was a kid growing up in the late 80s, they said I was very musical. Uh, and I think that had a lot to do with the fact that music was always playing in our home, whether it was, you know, Bengali folk songs, the songs of Rabindranath Tagore, or it was, you know, Hindu spiritual songs or Kirtan or, you know, things like that, Indian classical music. But my, you know, my dad loved Rod Stewart and Nat King Cole. And, you know, they, they really, you know, loved rock and roll. And it was this thing where I think very early on, uh, music claimed me music chose me. And as a young kid, I started playing the violin through a system called the Suzuki method, which is a very famous method developed by a Japanese child psychologist and, and very famous violinist named Shinichi Suzuki. And, you know, the, the Suzuki method is a curriculum of, you know, 10 books. It's a very, very common method now. But what we often forget is that Suzuki was developing this method post-World War II uh, and developing a way for young Japanese children to find themselves, see themselves, and, and find and build community. And it was really a revolutionary kind of method uh, back then, but, you know, of course, spread throughout the entire world. And, you know, as a young kid, um, the way the Suzuki method was set up, you would listen to music books while also reading the music. So you'd listen and read, listen and read. And so I actually learned most of the music by ear which is actually very much the way that our Eastern cultures learn and teach music in oral traditions. Um, and so I would pick up things from books I wasn't yet allowed to, to learn yet. My teachers hadn't set me up and told me that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't yet ready to learn that stuff, but I just learned it all by ear, I ate it up. So music, I think, as a, as a very young person, it consumed me. There was nothing more 
important or, or delicious for me than to play music. I gobbled it up. You know, and then the sort of word professional becomes its own interruption to that flow. I think so often, especially for people who find a love for something early on, is the moment that that becomes, ah, now let's leverage it to put some money on the table, or put some food on the table. The passion or the love transmutes into something utilitarian. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy for us to lose not only our drive and our momentum and passion, it's also very easy for us to only make steps that have utility in mind. And so we're not making the space for that voracious, delicious, soul-fulfilling love, which is really where we come into dialogue with the instrument. You know, so often I've been asking myself, who is the real instrument, right? I play the violin, but the violin doesn't physically change. Mm. Even the music I play as a Western classical musician, the notes on the page were often written by people who are long gone. The notes on the page don't change unless we are looking through scholarship or research or looking at original sources. I change. I am the instrument of change, right? And when I think about the ways in which I have been crafted, I have been eroded, I have been transformed by the violin, the violin and music has allowed me to birth multiple identities for myself. And I think about, you know, a word in Sanskrit, uh, the word Sri or the word Dvija, you know, and when we talk about a great musician like Ravi Shankar, you might hear Sri Ravi Shankar or Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. And what Sri means is reborn. One is reborn, yeah. right? Their craft has consumed them such that they are an entirely new person. Right? And so Sri Sri means that you have been crafted and manifested twice. Right? And so it is this constant process of being carved by the craft that I have set out to embrace in my life. Now, to play off of that theme, Vijay, of Sri, how did you then find yourself in a place where you were? amongst people, homeless people in Skid Row, where you're essentially providing them with a therapeutic way to kind of, in some sense, become reborn. Mm. Help me understand how that process kind of took place in the work that you do there in the midst of so many people in Skid Row. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's very often sort of framed uh, around the work that I get to do in Skid Row as a thing that I sought out to do, kind of like the violin, you know, like I sought out to play the violin. I very much see the work that Street Symphony has done in Skid Row as the terminus for a search, a real longing for connection and engagement. When I started Street Symphony, I had just joined the Los Angeles Philharmonic, uh, which was one of, when continues to be, one of the preeminent, you know, classical music institutions in the country. And the way that Western classical music is presented, of course, is that there is the rituals of decorum. The orchestra is on stage, on a platform separated from the audience. The audience is in the dark. The orchestra is often wearing clothes from a different century, uh, playing music that is far removed from, at least on the surface, far removed from 
a current cultural awareness. The music is seen as a kind of luxury commodity to be consumed. And I never felt that way about the music because the kind of passionate, voracious love I had for composers like Beethoven and Brahms and Bartok and Mozart often had a lot to do with their very human, very broken stories. I wanted a way to tell those stories and I wanted a way to tell the stories of the composers and to find the resonance of that music in an audience that I could talk to that weren't going to be hidden behind the veil of that decorum, the veil of the fourth wall. And so when I started reaching out to, uh, at first, hospices and then shelters and clinics in Skid Row, which is the epicenter of the crisis of homelessness in America today, I wasn't aware of the fact that Skid Row was a community. I thought I was just going to go into a facility and do something nice for some people and just offer something, offer some music to people who I would never see in the hall. But what started to happen is that those people started to talk back to me. And at first, I was very uncomfortable about this. I felt like, oh, wow, I don't know if I actually signed up for human contact. I don't know if I really signed up for something that... Uh, took me out of the role of being the professional, of being the expert. Mm-hmm. Because what people often asked me about were questions about myself that I didn't know how to answer. Like, what did I feel when I was playing this music? Mm-hmm. Often I would play for people in a clinic or a shelter, and they would say, oh, honey, the face you make when you play, you've seen some stuff. What have you seen? And I wasn't ready to talk about my experiences of pain. I wasn't ready to talk about my experiences of brokenness or vulnerability because I thought as a performer, I had to wear an armor. Uh, I thought that I had to Mm. wear this veneer of uh, expertise and infallibility. At least that's the way I was trained. You know, Mm -hmm. when we're trained as Western classical musicians, we're trained to be bulletproof. We're trained to stand up on stage and be able to project this persona of of strength. And I think that this metaphor can often translate to any profession where we are trained to be professional, right? We're trained to not Mm -hmm. let any light through and let anyone see the kind of squishy, uh, malleable, fragile person inside. Uh, But that's what started to emerge in Skid Row. So I actually have to thank the Skid Row community uh, for listening to me and demanding to listen to me in a different way. Because the moment that they opened those questions, I started to play differently. Hmm. I noticed that I was never nervous in Skid Row, whereas I was often very nervous to the point of shaking on stage in front of paying audiences. Hmm. And what I realized is that, yeah, I I was in a very different dynamic in Skid Row. I was playing and engaging with humanity as opposed to playing with somebody else's version of perfection. I really like that. It reminds me, Vijay, of um, what the famous poet Rumi once said. He said, um, the wound is the place where the light gets in, right? So the very awareness of your pain is where the is an opportunity to let the light in, to become aware of this... Um, of this source or potential source of healing. And that's kind of what you're getting to, right? I literally have that quote written behind me on a piece of art that's, that's literally behind my back right now. I'll show it to you. Yeah. I've been really ruminating on 
the metaphor of kintsugi. Kintsugi is、uh, a Japanese craft that started in the 14th century when a shogun、uh, general, a samurai general, broke his favorite porcelain teacup. And he sent it back to China to be repaired. And when it was sent back to him, it was fixed with metal staples. It was like sutured back together. And the shogun looked at this and he was like, this, this is perfectly usable, but it's ugly. It doesn't have the spirit of my cup. And maybe the spirit of the cup is gone because it's broken.、Mm-hmm. So he then gave the cup to his own artisans and they actually lined the cracks with golden glue.、Mm-hmm. And instead of hiding the cracks, they showed the cracks. Right? And so the truth is that right now we are constantly embedded in this process of being broken and being broken open.、Mm-hmm. And even the container of our understanding, the container on which our society was built, the containers of our histories have to be broken open and remade in the reckoning. Of who we are in the world. This is the process of evolution, where the butterfly literally has to break the calcified cocoon and then make a new life. And so, this metaphor of brokenness is operative, especially when it comes to the work in Skid Row, because it is very easy. To look at someone who is in the throes of an addiction or throes of a mental illness and call them broken.、Mm. And I found over the last 10 years of doing this work that we are very quick to ostracize and criminalize the people who we call broken.、Mm. And I believe that there is a connection between being very uncomfortable around people who we call broken because it brings up something of our own brokenness. It brings up something of our own fragile, humble humanity. You know, it strikes me that after the COVID crisis, during the COVID crisis, you know,、uh, there will be five to ten people who grieve for every person who has died. You know, and that, that's just the consequence of grief, period. But now we have this epidemic of grief, this epidemic of brokenness and loneliness. So I see this as an incredible opportunity. For evolution and redefinition. You know, this is what viruses have historically always done for us in the past. They have driven our societies into new places of illumination and waking up.、Uh, and I am seeing those, you know, the, the kind of tendrils come up from the cracks. Um, that give me a lot of hope as well as the opportunity to sit with grief and brokenness as well. At this point in the conversation, Vijay, I'd like to talk to you about Nathaniel Ayers. Could you tell us his story and how、uh, his story of transcendence became a Hollywood hit by the name of The Soloist, starring Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr.? And then also, could you tell us about the role that you had in helping him flourish in his craft as a musician?、Mm. So, Nathaniel 
Ayers uh, was one of the first black musicians to study at the Juilliard School in the 1970s. He was a double bassist. Uh, he grew up in Cleveland. And even when he was in his teens, he was a phenom bassist. And his teachers in Cleveland said, you know, there's something to this kid that is manic. There's something in this kid that requires nurturing and care. And he was so talented at the same time that there was this opportunity for him to audition for and then go to Juilliard. And the conservatory environment, I think, for Nathaniel, uh, speaking from my own experience, was really traumatic for him. Oftentimes, people who have a proclivity for, say, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder will manifest in their late teens, early 20s, but it will also manifest under situations of extreme stress. And during his time at Juilliard, Nathaniel had a full psychotic break. Uh, he was committed to Bellevue Hospital. And at the time, the treatment, heavy quotes, treatment for schizophrenia was Thorazine and restraints. And we now know that overdoses of Thorazine actually fry the dopaminergic neurons in the prefrontal cortex. And for someone like you or I, who may not have the same kind of schizoaffective proclivities, it actually causes schizophrenia. Mm. Um, and so when Nathaniel was released from Bellevue, his family said he was totally unrecognizable. They said he was like a zombie. He didn't have his charm. He didn't have his talent. He didn't want to play music. He was completely lost to the world. And uh, Nathaniel had uh, a dad who he didn't grow up around, but he knew that his dad was a long-haul trucker somewhere in the American West. And so Nathaniel um, kind of greyhounded his way across the U.S. and ended up landing in Los Angeles during the time when the mental health institutions were being dissolved across the country, you know, and there was even something at the time called Greyhound Therapy, where hospitals uh, and, you know, even clinics elsewhere in the country would buy a one-way ticket for someone with a severe mental illness, and they would just be dropped off in downtown Los Angeles. And this was sort of um, the beginning of the crisis, an epidemic of homelessness compounded with severe mental illness, uh, which, of course, then leads to people self-medicating with drugs. You know, you, you pair on the crack epidemic that was happening, you know, just a few years later, and you have Skid Row. And Nathaniel found a life for himself in Los Angeles, in this new community. And when I met him, uh, he had already been discovered by an LA Times columnist named Steve Lopez, who had written about him and had invited Nathaniel to rehearsals and concerts at Walt Disney Concert Hall. And there were several of my colleagues in the orchestra at the time who befriended Nathaniel. And I became one of those people. And at one point, uh, Nathaniel, who had you know, who was a double bassist at Juilliard, had picked up a violin somewhere. He found a violin or he bought a violin and he really wanted to learn how to play. And so he would talk to me about, you know, fingerings and bowings and all these technical violinistic things. And I was probably 21 or 22 at the time. I didn't really know how to teach except for the ways that my teachers had taught me. So I would just pull out my violin and I would play with him. And I would say, hey, well, this is what I do, 
Why don't you try it? Why don't you try it? Mm. And so this became the beginning of a conversation that we would have. And from time to time, Nathaniel would push his shopping cart, you know, up a hill for about a mile and a half from Skid Row to Disney Hall, where he would then park his shopping cart, pull out his violin, and then we would play together first backstage at Disney Hall. And then I sort of started to meet him halfway. Uh, first, I would meet him an mm -hmm. eighth of the way and we would play uh, outside uh, in front of the hall. And then we'd play a little bit further down the hill, further down the street. And slowly, slowly, I started playing with Nathaniel in Skid Row. I started playing with him where he was living. And I got to see that, you know, in Skid Row, Nathaniel was the guide. Nathaniel was the teacher. He was the one who was showing me how to be in that community. He was showing me how to keep my head on a swivel. He was showing me how beauty still mattered. He was showing me how the music still had a role that one could call therapeutic. Mm. Um, but, you know, of course, there was a movie made about Nathaniel called The Soloist, um, which is adapted from the book that Steve Lopez wrote. And there is this sort of myth and narrative around stories that get discovered in the homeless community of L.A. that there is a kind of redemption that happens or a redemption through music. And we've learned at Street Symphony to really challenge this narrative because the truth is Nathaniel now lives at an institution. He's no longer in Skid Row. He's no longer in his community. And yes, he receives ready and regular medical care. He receives treatments that are healthy for him. He can play his instruments. He's safe, but he's totally divorced from his community. Mm. And what kind of strikes me as uh, a bit of pain and a bit of a, a lie in the way that redemption narratives get spun is that once a person uh, has made it in Hollywood or is on the silver screen, that they're somehow okay that they're somehow now no longer really worth thinking about. Um, and this is kind of a pernicious narrative when it comes to incarceration or homelessness or addiction, that once somebody's out of sight, they're out of mind, right? We're not going to solve homelessness by just putting people behind a four-walled room. We're not going to solve homelessness by taking people off the street. Homelessness is a deeply spiritual existential condition which requires relationship and connection and now I don't have a connection with Nathaniel but I'm able to carry on the work uh, that he shepherded me into uh, with people who are in re-entry and recovery from addiction and homelessness mm. and incarceration because on one hand there are many talented beautiful wonderful people living in Skid Row and on the other hand Skid Row is a place where people go to die. And we have had members of our community who we've lost, mm. who have died due to addiction uh, or to overdoses or who disappear or who leave Skid Row and, you know, rejoin with their families. And maybe they live a good life, but we don't know how they are. Mm. And so in a sense, every one of these relationships ends in transformation, which includes some kind of loss. Mm. I really appreciate that explanation, that kind of framing there, Vijay. And what would be really great to kind of better understand since you're in the midst of working with people in, in, in Skid Row, quite literally the epicenter of homelessness in America, especially during the time of COVID, which I'm sure has increased the number of people that are now homeless 
I'd love to kind of get your insight in terms of what is it that's deeply curious about Skid Row? What is it that you've learned? What is it that it's taught you that people on the outside may not understand quite literally about the place? When one feels the call, say it's a call of charity or a call of wanting to do something good in the world, you know, and, and goes to a shelter or goes to a clinic or wants to volunteer, that comes from a perfectly honorable place <laughs> in one's heart. And that's certainly where we started with Street Symphony. You know, I grew up being told in, in my Hindu sort of upbringing that, you know, the way to worship God is really by serving man. Like that's, that's, how, you, that's how you really worship. And what I also realized is when we would go in and play a concert and give people some joy or some hope, uh, you know, of course they would stand on their feet and they would applaud and cheer and we became celebrities and we became heroes in that room. And it became very easy for us to kind of pat ourselves on the back and almost become addicted <laughs> to this idea of being, being the heroes in the room. And when we started to peer beneath the surface, we realized that actually it became very close to us using this community for our own sort of benefit, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And when we confronted ourselves with that notion, we realized that our real work here was to understand that the Skid Row community was listening to us differently. Mm. They were listening to us through the lens of connection and engagement and humanity, as opposed to wanting to consume a product. We should not consume them if they were not going to consume us. And so what started to happen there was the beginning of dialogue and relationships. And, and what that looks like for us now is that we have programs that are co-convened by community members or by clinical social workers or by therapists so that the event is an ongoing conversation that might last for two, three, four, five years with people who come and go. But the work is to create this kind of transformative container where the moment of change, and we actually have a program called Music for Change, the moment of change is actually the fact that we're all in the room together and we're all present together. And there is no agenda from the musicians or from the audience that one party has to change. One party has to become a different way in order to belong to the space. And so by being present, we are creating these spaces and instances of belonging that are deeply transformative. That's actually what allows for a new conversation to emerge. Whether that's a conversation that lies uh, subconsciously inside us, unnamed and unsaid, or if it's something that just one party hasn't noticed. And so, you know, we have a number of programs that are convened in Skid Row, one with the Midnight Mission, which is one of our longest partners, is a 12-step recovery shelter. Another one is the Weingart Center, which is the main re-entry point for people emerging from incarceration across the 35 prisons in California. And what strikes me about this community, I think the greatest thing I've learned from the Skid Row community, is that people living in Skid Row do not wish to be defined by their inadequacies. They take their identities from more than that wound. Mm. 
from more than the worst thing that ever happened to them or the worst thing that they ever did to another person. And we've had these amazing conversations about forgiveness and that forgiveness really is about choosing a new narrative. Forgiveness is about writing and self-authoring a new story for oneself in the vision of a transformed life such that we're able to take one tiny step every single day. And that's what I have learned from people in recovery. That recovery, really, recovery from addiction, is about the moment. It's about, can I be here? Can I be here right now? Can I be in this moment? This moment is the step. And that has actually really inspired the way I practice the violin. It has inspired the way that I think about my own practice, because I will confront a piece of music that perhaps, say, terrifies me, or that I thought, oh, I'll never be able to play that, or I'll never be able to record that. And I'll just take one small step, one small step. And recently, over the last you know two years, I've actually been posting daily on Instagram with the hashtag, you know, creative sadhana. And sadhana in Sanskrit means practice, daily practice. And so, you know, I invite all of your listeners and you to think about what is your creative sadhana? What is your creative practice? What is that small step that you can take every day towards a vision of yourself? And for me, the artistic practice has become an anchor to realizing recovery and reentry and renewal in many different aspects of my life, whether it is the way I eat mm. or the way I work out or the way I consume products in the world, realizing that we can't buy our way back to wholeness, right? We can't consume mm. our way back to health. We have to always be in dialogue with that moment, that small step. Mm-hmm. I really like what you're saying here, Vijay. And what really, what's surfacing now as you kind of share your insight is, you know, what is the relationship that we want to have with ourselves? What is the relationship that we want to have with others? And what is the relationship that we want to have with the world? The question that really is that, uh, in a lot of the conversations that kind of surface now between me and my guests and my friends and people that I'm engaging with is, what is our relationship with time? And if you can kind of really dig down into that, it really helps you better understand how you've been living, what you've been missing, where your mind goes when you're not completely present. It's an interesting way to kind of frame who you are in the moment, who you've been and where you want to go and who you want to be. And so as it pertains to this sense of you know, uh, self-examination and self-awareness, I'd love to pivot and kind of talk about your recent transformation journey that many of us have been witness to in terms of weight loss. Can you talk to us about how you kind of came to the realization that you wanted to change? You came to a place in your life where you had to confront that element of who you were. Um, when you got to a breaking point where you thought to yourself, I no longer want to be this person. Help us understand what that's been like for you and what you learned about that. So I want to preface this beautiful question with two parameters. One is this sense of confronting oneself, right? I really love that word because I feel that true accountability, whether it comes to time or how we live our lives, is about confronting ourselves with our own freedom. 
right? It's about saying, I will be the person who determines what I make with this day, what I make with this time. Truly, all we have is this moment. And the quality of this moment is what sets us up for the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And the quality of this moment is determined by the choice we make in this moment. It comes back again and again to this idea of choosing what life we will manifest for ourselves. We have a choice. We have a choice whether to claim those broken, vulnerable parts of ourselves, which is the key to our transformation, the key to our humanity, or to build the armor back up <laughs> and to let the algorithm determine how we live our lives, right? And so, so that, that's one kind of framing. The other framing for me really comes to this idea of the small step. Because it became clear to me a couple of months ago <laughs> that I have lived in somebody else's narrative of myself ever since I was a very little kid. So I lived in this narrative of, of being a child prodigy. And I was told that I was a child prodigy because I played with orchestras when I was a child and I toured the world and I went to Juilliard at a young age. And that never felt like something prodigious to me. It just felt like this is who I am. And so I was... I had a spotlight shined on me for all the things that somebody else told me was exceptional, but to me felt totally natural. And the places where I needed support or where I wasn't natural or wasn't, you know, was struggling, these places kind of uh, really kind of petered out and became wounds for me, they became pathologies for me. So one was the way I ate. I ate for comfort. I ate as a way of soothing myself or numbing myself. I didn't know how to deal with emotions like anger or fear or sadness because I thought, well, I'm a prodigy. I'm not allowed to be angry. I'm not allowed to be sad. I'm not allowed to have fear. You have to be fearless, I was told. So instead of sitting with my fear and feeling it, I ate my fear, <laughs> right? And then the other narrative was, you know, okay, now I started going to college when I was 13. Again, ah, you're the genius. You're the person who is the freak. You're the, the brilliant one. You must know all the answers. And again, that fear, the sense of being a fraud, any of the shame, I didn't know how to deal with it, right? And then I was in the LA Phil when I was 19. Oh my God. You know, there's that story again. When I felt alone in the job, when I felt unsatisfied creatively, I would think to myself, well, who the hell are you to feel this feeling? You have the best job that any classical musician could have. The world would kill for the job you have. So I would stop at Jack in the Box on the way home from a concert, right? So then the sort of shift came for me in these little whispers. You know, and I think that's, that's really how the shifts come. You know, the, the great theologians like Thomas Merton talk about how, you know, the, the voice of God comes in that still small voice, right? It's a little whisper. And sure, there were moments where I would 
step on the scale and feel like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. That's insane that that number is that. And so then I would do what I you know, had trained to do my whole life, which was then to apply the rigor and brutality of being a performing concert violinist to working out. So I worked out like crazy and I didn't talk to anyone for help. And I thought, God damn it, you did this to yourself. You're going to get out of it by yourself, right? And so I started all these brutal workouts of which, of course, none of which were sustainable. And then I would crash and eat, you know, a whole bucket of pasta. You know, it was that kind of thing. And so the transformation started truly 10 years ago. You know, it started without realizing that I was already taking the first steps of the journey then. Mm. And that the first steps were coming with finally being able to feel those feelings of discomfort. Finally being able to ask questions of, ah, oh, well, what, is, what if this is just about building a vocabulary and building skills? So slowly, slowly that started to manifest in asking for help. So I started to ask for support from friends like, hey man, I'm going to send you a picture of everything I eat, no matter what it is, you know, and to build an accountability partner and then to be brave enough to start going to a trainer and to say, okay, no matter what, I'm going to show up to this trainer once a week. But I remember my first year of working with my trainer, there was a bakery across the street from my trainer. So I'd work out, I would sweat my ass off, and then I would go straight into the bakery right after the session, you know? And I just, I didn't have the, the skills to realize that, ah, okay, there's something aching inside me. Something else has to be nourished. And that something else was a five, six, seven, eight-year-old boy who needed to find a sense of play as opposed to just being confronted with, ah, you're wrong or you're bad or you deserve shame, right? So the truth is that I had to claim myself at my heaviest. I had to learn how to love that heaviest person who, you know, I used to walk by buildings, skyscrapers uh, in downtown LA, and I, I wouldn't look to the right or left because I knew I would see my own reflection. I was so ashamed of what I knew I would see. And so I had to really confront myself to look and see, right? And to realize that for all the looking and seeing I was trying to do for people who were ignored by society, there was such a huge part of me that I was ignoring myself. And so this is where I come back to recovery and reentry, mm. because I had to realize that there was an aspect of my life that was an addiction. You know, it was an addiction to the hustle. It was an addiction to feeling like I could move at a million miles an hour every single day and that I didn't have to recover. I didn't have to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. And even now, I'm like reversely addicted to the workout. <laughs> I'm reversely addicted to the feeling of no, ah, the burn. The burn is where I'm building muscle, I know it. I have to humble myself now by forcing myself to recover, right? And forcing myself to have days off where I eat the whole caloric load and I make sure that I stretch and that I rest. And so I'm, I'll pause there, but, you know, it's, it's a very long journey and it required support in the forms of, you know, physical support and nutritional support and therapy support and relational support. But to really realize that, ah, the first steps I took wasn't when the number changed on the scale. 
The first step was when I finally decided to look at myself. I really appreciate that story of you, Jane. Really what you're kind of describing as the way I kind of hear it is that in order to find a sense of freedom, you have to go through vulnerability. You have to confront yourself for who you are and all the decisions that you've made as a result of the life that you've lived. And if you really look at it, I mean, it's fair to say that we are a culmination of all the decisions we've ever made. And if you take that as the starting block, then you're in a place where you can say, okay, I have agency to be able to choose the next step. I have the agency. And it takes courage to actually do that, right? It actually takes courage. And, and your story of personal transformation is quite literally that. I find it to be a story of being courageous, of being honest, and of being true to the person who you want to be. You don't have to be that six, seven-year-old VJ anymore. That's no longer you if you don't want to. You can quite literally edit the narrative that you've been telling yourself and, and give yourself a new narrative that you can settle into and then share with the world. So I just want to say thank you for doing that. Thank you for sharing your own personal story. Thank you. Thank you, Bakhtash. You know, I'll, I'll close with this amazing quote from Toni Morrison, who I, I love. And she said, narrative is radical because it creates us as we create it. You know, and this is from her Nobel Prize speech in 1993. And you know, she says, make up a story. Make up a story. Make up the story for yourself. And then take each day to take a small step towards that story. You know, that's how we can envision change. And, you know, I, I feel so drawn to this saying, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. When we change, the world changes because our perspective changes. The way that we look at the world changes. And we know that electrons change based on who looks at them, right? So, you know, to end with, uh, with Hafiz, you know, the great Sufi mystic and poet from 14th century Persia, he says, you know, why not be the person who has two full moons in each eye, speaking that sweet moon language that every person is dying to hear? You know, every person we see, we say, love me, love me, love me. So look in the mirror with two full moons in your eyes and say that to yourself. Vijay Gupta, I feel like I could speak to you all day. <laughs> I just want to say uh, thank you for the work that you do, my friend, and uh, thank you for being the light in the darkness. Mm, thank you, Bhaktash. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for joining the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced and hosted by me, Bhaktash Ahadi. Audio engineering by Joke and Jemmy. Digital marketing and assets by Dana Drahos and Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashita Ahadi and theme music by Kais Esor. If you enjoy the content that we're sharing here at the Stories of Transformation podcast, you can help us spread our message and our content far and wide by telling your friends and your family, as well as leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're grateful for your support, and on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. As always, do good and be well wherever you are in the world. All right, that's all I got for now. Until next time.